Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When people primarily start a business, they're really starting a venture um, in the pursuit of making money, right? Whereas a hobby, a hobby on the other hand, you can, you know, if you're an artist or a painter, you're normally doing something for the love of it. So the difference is that um, you'll see that if you're doing something in the pursuit of making money, it will normally have commercial elements attached to it, whether it be structure, systems, and so forth. Whereas if you're doing something for interest, or a hobby, it will normally be far more, less systemized, a bit more ad hoc, um, more for enjoyment and love and passion, as opposed to just generally trying to make money. Hello Australia, you're listening to My Millennial Money and we've got Scott Young with us today. He's a director of Altus Financial. It's a full-service accounting firm, but Scott specialises in small to medium business. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thank you, Glenn. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, John. So, we're going to swing back around to that hobby thing because that sounded very grey. But before we get into the show, I want to give a shout out to our show partner, Sun Super. They've got behind the show. They're helping the show live on. It's like Titanic, John. It is. You know, my heart will go on. Yeah. M3 will go on thanks to Sun Super support. For another 12 months. For another, anyway. <laughs> yeah. We can't talk about the commercial aspects, John. <laughs> but if you are looking at superannuation, as you know, we'll never tell you what company to use, but certainly throw Sun Super into the mix. They've won every award under the sun. And we're certainly... Literally. Literally. Sun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we are very happy to have them support the show. So we thank you, Sun Super, for doing that. You can check them out on Instagram at Sun Super. So, Scott, I want to swing back around to that hobby thing. It sounds grey. So, basically, from what you've said... Oh, and g'day, John. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Thanks. From what you've told me, if I was sewing something at home just because I liked it and I sold the odd thing to friends of friends and I didn't have a separate bank account, it was just literally a hobby that I sell stuff on the mm. side... The ATO is not coming to arrest me. Oh, look, <laughs> good question, Glenn. If, if you've been reading things in the news lately, the whole black economy or the cash economy is something that's raising a lot of attention. So they are approaching this in a far more um, structured manner where they're trying to, to minimise the amount of people that are selling things for cash and not declaring that income. However, there's been a history and supported by cases where often... Most taxpayers will, will like to do one of the two following things. If, 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 if they pursue a hobby and end up making a lot of money, like owning a horse that only last week won the Melbourne Cup or so forth, yes. then they would like to argue that that's a hobby and therefore not in the pursuit of profit and, and not declare that income. Um, on the opposite side, you can imagine the situation where, where someone's building and selling a few surfboards in their garage. By the time they take into account all the expenses or the costs that they use on those surfboards, it may they may only sell three or four a year. 
and they, they, they spend more than what they sell, so therefore they make a loss. So those taxpayers will often try and say, well, hang on, my hobby is a business and I should be able to claim that cost against my income. So so does it come back to intent? What, mate, what is your intent? It, it, it is, and, and that is one of the things. And it, and it is it is grey, as, as Glenn said. We, we all wish it was a little bit more black and white. But, but intent is important, right? And, and intent is normally based on the facts and circumstances. So, so intent to carry on a business would look something along the lines of registering a business name, opening up a bank account, um, potentially taking premises, trying to have a level of structure, like, like intent, like I do it, um, I've, I've quit my job and now doing this three to four days a week. Yeah. Would you tell your accountant or, or someone, uh, some advisor that, this is my intent. It's a hobby. I love it. Uh, I can't see myself replacing my daily income from it. Uh, is that a good way to start? Mate, I think that's a great way to start, right? Because, because that, 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 as you just said, you, you, your intent is to do something outside of your regular job activities, yeah. which is sort of normally seen as that, that's when hobbies and interests happen, mm. right? And, and it could be the start of a side hustle and you don't know it. So... Okay, here's the thing. So, if I'm making surfboards or sewing cushion covers, there's a name for cushion covers, isn't there? Why am I looking at John? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing which one you'd be doing, yeah. sewing or oh, surfboard. I might do Probably both, whatever. Sewing, whatever. I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. I want to learn to knit. Anyway, that's another story. Do I, I don't need an ABN for that if I'm just doing it as a hobby, do I? Uh, that, the, the right answer as a hobby is correct. You yes. don't need to. But- the, the, the strict answer from, from a legislative perspective would be that if you're, you're carrying on business and selling a product, you're meant to be registered, which is primarily have an ABN, declare the income, offset it against. You could have costs that are you, reporting it is probably where they say you should be doing. Yes. Okay. So, just to bookend this little hobby verse legitimate side hustle business thing, if Uncle Glenn could give some advice... I would say if you are doing something on the side and it's been 12 months and you think you're making a profit, for your own benefit, turn it up to 11. Register that business name, set up a different bank account, see where it will take you. Interesting, in this day and age online, the government, if you did take off, they could say, oh, you've got an Instagram account with 10,000 followers. That's intent. Absolutely. So, it might even be six months. Hmm. So, I just think you just need to step back and go, look, I'll try this. I'll make some surfboards. I'll make some pillow covers or whatever it is. See where it goes. Yeah. If it is starting to grow legs, absolutely. Register an ABN. Mm-hmm. Set up a separate bank account. Why not? That's what I'd say. Why not? Yeah. I think you just got to check in every six months and see, is this transitioning to a real deal or is it just still a hobby sort of thing? Yeah. yeah I think that's a good good point, John. Like, because you can carry a lot of risk where, where as I said before, hobbyists losing money like to genuinely try and argue I'm carrying on a business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. so that's that's important to also check in because if you've gone and taken up a site and were carrying on a business and was legitimately trying to earn money and then you stopped effort into that area, it could be that your circumstances are actually changed, right? Mm. It's moved from a business really back to a hobby. Yeah. yeah? And if you've moved to the Cayman Islands, there's probably some avoidance going on there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so if it is, if you are in the pursuit of profit, you're not doing it for fun or you know something, and it's more than personal interest, it's probably a business. Yeah. So, and this is important. Like a lot of people listening to this episode, you might be an employee for the government. 
you might be an employee for a small business and you have no desire to start a small business and you're thinking, why the hell am I listening to this episode? I would say you still might learn something that someone in your life might need to know. Mm. You might listen to this and think, oh, my friend needs to hear this episode. I'm going to send it to them. This could be an episode that is of value to people in your world. Okay. And it is the last episode of the year. So, you might have some thinking to do over the the break of what you want to do with your hobby or if you want to start a side business. So, I don't think anything's lost. So, and Glenn, just just on that point, like in my role and seeing many people that that come in who who were salary and waged people, um, often they come across an innovative idea. You know, they they could be working in an existing business and realize that there's a service or a product that that currently isn't being met. Um, that's where they 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 realize the market. They gain knowledge and understanding. You're absolutely right. One day they decide oh, what does it take and can I go into my own small business? Yeah, absolutely. So what we're going to do now, and I've put this out to the Facebook group, I've put it out to the M3 private membership portal, and I've put it out to Instagram for you to send in your questions. There was this overarching theme without giving everyone's name because it's it's irrelevant because it was that many about structures, sole trader, company, partnerships. A few people mentioned trusts. So there's basically four broad business structures for want of a better word. And what we're going to do, we're just going to run through now each structure, the pros and cons of each Mm -hmm. and how they're taxed. Okay. So let's talk about a sole trader. And I think within the sole trader, can you just cover ABN registration and what is an ABN? Okay. So yeah, sole trader. Okay. Look, sole trader is, is when you, when you talk about the actual journey of a business and like you mentioned before, a hobbyist decides that it's time to now register and, and they want to become a bit more serious. Sole trader is normally the first step in that journey. They, it, it's simple. It's cost effective. The, the ABN is a registered business number that's basically an identifiable through the tax system. Okay, so you must register and have an ABN and, and, and when you trade with other people or other commercial businesses, they have obligations in relation to withholding pa- from payments to you if you don't quote an ABN. So that was introduced when the GSD system occurred back in 2000, right? A sole trader is really an extension of the individual, right? So it's, it's an individual carrying on business, so it's a sole trader and, and, and can be a registered business name okay, in, in their own right. And, and basically it's them as an individual and the way they're identified with carrying on the business operation that they have. So, a sole, but what that means is a sole trader, whilst carrying on a business in their own name, they could register whatever business name they wished. It's an identified business name. They have an ABN. They can then go about selling products and services, having employees, trading no different to any of the other entities. It's just that they're doing it in their own capacity. Right. So, Cara in the M3 membership group, she asks, at what point do I need an ABN? I've started a little Etsy store and I'm unsure as to whether I need it or not. And the thing is, Cara, like that could be, well, I've started a hobby of making some necklaces, for example, or whatever that is, and I'm just going to put my toe in the water and, you know, see how it goes. Maybe if it's been six months a year and you're starting to make a profit and you want to turn it into something, then we might need an ABN. Yeah, look, I, I think Cara being online and, and, and online is an area that that is being looked at quite closely. There's probably an issuing of tax invoices, 
right? Because um, a lot of these online shops and uh, that I deal with, you, you often get an automated invoice being sent back mm. to your inbox. Very now, traceable, isn't it? Yeah, it's very traceable. And one would probably say that that's different to someone who holds a little market stall, you know, selling. Taking s- cashies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, one, uh, one Sunday a month. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So especially, and, and that's that's really the point where an ABN is important. It's meant to be it's on meant to be on those tax invoices that are sent to your customers, and and technically the customer is meant to um, apply certain rules when making payments to you. Now on that, so in the most practical terms, if I'm an employee working at the hospital and I do my tax return each year, if I've got a little side hustle, it could be Glenn James trading as Glenn's Radical Boards Bro. Here's my ABN. So you can either have a name or use your own name. And I still work at the hospital, but on my tax return, it's the same tax return, but there's a section in there that has my business expenses and my business income. So I tell people, when you've got a, an ABN and you're a sole trader, the tax return, imagine a big funnel. All the money's going into the funnel and it's just coming out the bottom and it washes up the same. Is that a... How would you say that analogy? That's perfect, Glenn. Oh, That's thanks. exactly the way well it works. Well done, Glenn. Do you have any jobs going at Alpha's? <laughs> why, why have we got Always. Scott here when Glenn's here? <laughs> John, so, you're flattering. You yeah. really are. So, because people get really confused about this whole tax situation and get fearful of it, right? Second income is a really prevalent one where, okay, I, I go and get a second job and I'm taxed at a higher rate, mm. right? How does a side hustle work in respect to that yeah look good question john um a side hustle from a sole trader perspective just following what glenn mentioned Mm. before basically at the end of the year that funnel includes all your income okay and the way the tax system works here is it applies marginal rates depending on how much income you've earned in total right so depending on the tax bracket that one may sit they will pay a higher rate of tax on the side hustle because they've already earned the, the or, and used up a lot of the threshold and the early tax-free threshold elements because of the wage that's been earned. Yeah. yeah? So what this is an important point where, where regardless of what size business or what entity you're using, just managing the tax payable on that because if you are earning, say, 10000 a year from that, that business, you may end up paying 30% of that in tax when you lodge that tax return. Yeah, and I generally tell people if you are starting business on the side and it's your first year, whether it's a, a side hustle and it's an ABN and you're working at the hospital or you just go and stuff it, I'm just going to work for myself and be a floor and war tiler or whatever, that first year, even if you put away 25% every time you get paid from that money in a separate account, because when you do your tax return, you will get a tax bill because you've withheld money at the hospital or whatever. Or if you're on your own, you will get a tax bill. But then the second year, the government will send you instalment notices. So they will say, last year, your side hustle, you earned X amount, and we need you to pay $1,200 every quarter in advance. Is that how it works? That's, that's correct. Um, you're absolutely right, Glenn. And, and the point of that is because otherwise, the, the lens that the ATO looks at it is that this business is earning money throughout the year and doesn't have to pay tax throughout the year, whereas all salary and wage employees have to have tax withheld each and every payroll. So it's a way whereby the system basically forces 
individuals or sole traders to pay tax instalments throughout the year. Mm. And Glenn's right. that The way they do that is not every week. They do it every quarter. In advance? Uh, no. Well, it's it's in the year that you're in. Yep. And it's actually, John, to, what happens is because you lodge after the end of the year, mm. there's always actually one year's A lag. lag. Yep. Yeah. So, Scott, what's the, what are the major cons of, of being a sole trader? Why would you not choose that as an option? Yeah, good good question, John. Um, the first one, like the pros we spoke about, it, it's simple, it's cost-effective, it's easy, no different structures. Uh, Glenn mentions that the tax return is just the same tax return that you've got just with a different s- schedule, right? Um, the cons, the primary cons are because it is in your own name, it's inflexible. So you're earning the income, you can't split any of that income, you can't um, cap the tax or withhold the tax, and I'll come to that with some of the other structures. You can't share it with anyone else because you've earned it. And also then asset protection, right? And this probably is at a point when the business gets level of size and scale. So what I mean by that is that that you are carrying on the business in your own capacity and right. And and often as an individual, you may be accumulating assets as you go along your your journey. You may have already accumulated before you started this business or and you may be accumulating along along the journey. Negligence or any risk of that whilst carrying on as a sole trader can carry some risk. Yeah. Right. So so all those assets are exposed based on your business trading activities. So there isn't a way for you to say, well, look, hang on. Yes, I started uh, commercialising some medical pills in my, in my garage. I was negligent there, but you can only take my business assets. It's like, no, all your personal assets are, yeah. are at risk. Because you're a sole trader. Because you're a sole trader. Yeah. Because I had a, a client last year who was a builder and still operating as a sole trader, been running a business for three or four years was you could clearly see it was definitely exposed but because of their insurance the HIA and everything else it was less clunky to remain as a sole trader as opposed to setting up a company so we had to revisit that pretty quickly yeah and look that's a great example like there are transition costs across from changing structures and and the other point just I wanted to make on sole traders is there can be a point on a sole trader's journey where they're limited in their commercial activities because of their structure. Yeah. Right? So there's numerous tier commercial builders, for example, um, in, in this country that will not contract with sole traders. Yeah, right? okay. Often government departments potentially sometimes say, we won't contract with, with a sole trader. Mm. Yeah, and is that because they don't want to ever be deemed that they've got an employee? That's right. That, yeah. that's, that's one of the big major risks. And, and one of the things in construction industry is, is workers' compensation. And, and look, I don't want to get too technical on, on the different structures, but in, a sole trader cannot actually get workers' compensation for themselves. They, they can for their employees, but they can't for themselves. So the risk is always that I'm engaging this sole trader to do a contract on my behalf but like you said glenn there's a perceived risk that they get deemed as an employee mm. and therefore i've looked at superannuation payroll tax workers compensation so so they they, they want to mitigate that risk mm. and potentially instead of assessing every sole trader that comes across their desk they just blank like, rule like rule and say we yeah. don't contract with sole traders Fair now i guess to bookend the sole trader thing I used the sole trader when I started my business and I can talk about my journey in a practical sense, but yes, it is funneled onto your personal tax return. Yes, it is just all your income, all your expenses, 
But I would say for practicality purposes, I would still have a separate bank account for your side hustle, for your business, than your personal stuff. The reason is you just want to, as the business grows, whether you are an employee at Woolworths or Coles or at the hospital, or you're a self-employed mogul like John Pigeon, everybody has fixed personal expenses in their life. We've got grocery bills, we've got mortgage, rent, power, phone. So there's no reason ever not to separate your banking yeah. from business to personal. I, because it, it's just, and it'll be easier at the end of the year if you've got an accountant or a bookkeeper, you can just print that bank account and go, that's the activity. Yeah, that's right. And it doesn't mean you need to set up a zero account or MyOB or anything like that. It just means it, you're keeping it separate so it does come to tax time. Here's what I've earned there. Here's what I've earned in my full-time job and it's yeah. really clear. And yeah. just on bank accounts, a lot of people who set up a sole trade or a side hustle, they think, I'm starting a business. I need to go get a business bank account. No, just go, don't even tell ING or up or whatever. Just go and open an account in your own name because remember... Your and for the Americans listening, it's DBA doing business as, or in Australia, trading as. It's Glenn James trading as Glenn's Radical Surfboards Bro. And I've just got a separate personal bank account because remember, it all goes on the same tax return. Mm. And we will get into it with um, as we go up this tree of when other ABNs and tax file numbers are needed. But you effectively have an ABN and your one tax file number when you are a sole trader. That's correct. Sweet. Okay. So, we won't spend too much time on partnerships. And are they a little bit now old-fashioned? Uh, they are. Yeah. Um, they're, they're still common in, in, in uh, professional services industries, primarily doctors, lawyers, um, barristers, accountants. Yes. Um, but, but you're right. Generally, like, we don't come across or see a lot of partnerships, per yeah. se. Because if John and I were starting a business tomorrow, it'd probably be a unit trust. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. don't want to complicate the water too much. So, just high level, how does a partnership work? Yeah, but basically a partnership in its own capacity is is a bit like a trust, but, but I'll, I'll come to trust a bit later. It's a flow-through vehicle. So, ultimately, the partners in that partnership receive the distribution. So, if you, if you were drawing a picture, you'd have at the top of the tree a partnership per se. So, it could be Glenn and John's radical surfboards. Bro. Bro. <laughs> and then that and the partners in Glenn and John's radical surfboards, bro, are Glenn and John. So in their personal tax returns, they would receive their distribution from that partnership. And that partnership would be governed by what you call a partnership agreement, which would outline the contributions by the partners and, and how those profits at the end of the year or the losses would be split or allocated between the partners. Okay. So as a practical example for the partnership, John and I are starting our surfboard company together. Does the partnership have its own separate ABN? Yes. And the owners of that ABN is Glenn and John. No. So, so it's a bit different to the sole trader um, structuring. Yes. It is a separate entity. Yes. Okay. So, it, it comes to life via the partnership agreement and then you register that entity via the an ABN, no different to what you said from a sole trader. And that's the identifiable identifier to basically – state that the partnership has been registered and is carrying on 
an operation and, and that there's partners behind that. And then the tax system looks through that. You, you would get a separate tax file number yes. for the partnership. Yep. So, again, that's different to the sole trader. And that partnership is responsible for lodging a tax return at the end of each year. And and at the end of each year, the tax return states the distribution to the partners and the partners and, – and you actually report the tax file number of the partners. In this case, it would be Glennon. Right. And, and do you have directors of that partnership? Or? No, no. You, you have partners of partners, the partnership. Yeah. 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 So I guess what I'm getting at is the partnership, ABN, is Glenn and John's Radical Surfboard Bro. That has its own ABN and its own tax file number. But the important thing is a partnership in itself doesn't pay tax. The tax file number doesn't pay any tax. It's just a reporting mechanism. Yes. But the partners pay tax that's correct on their own personal tax return it's a flow through vehicle correct but and again the the entity being the partnership can contract can carry on business um invoices customers can can sign a lease can open a bank account can can sue others can be sued can hire employees It, it can carry on all the attributes like an individual would but it's the partnership that's engaging in those commercial activities as opposed to the individual so do you can you leave money in there at the end of the year or do you have to take it all out yeah good good question john the majority have to be has to be distributed um there can be uh, poor tax implications if not so at the end of the year majority cases a distribution occurs from the partnership and the partners the partners are then assessed on that in their own rights right so when we open a bank account for our partnership, we would open the bank account and the owner of the bank account would be Glenn and John's Radical Surfboards Bro. And we would give the bank the tax file number for the partnership. Correct. Yep. yep. And we would both be signatories, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps not. In most cases for a small partnership, yep. yes. But you can imagine if you're, if you're a partnership, look, the, the big accounting firms are a great example of that. They might have 500 partners Globally. Must be a freaking nightmare. Oh, oh incredible. <laughs> they um, need a good accountant. Yeah. <laughs> but you wouldn't have 500 so would signatures. Would do their own taxes in-house or use like KPMG? Oh, look, <laughs> I'm sure they keep it all in-house. Yeah. I don't think they share <laughs> too much. Save on tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not so, going to share um, too much. Yeah. So why would you not use a partnership? Yeah, look, good, good, good question, John. It's mainly because of the reason that you, we just said before. Like, we started by saying sole traders. Sole traders loses a level of flexibility because it drops into their own personal name. In this case, a partnership, um, probably they were used a lot historically. Now you probably find them less commercially used. It's probably mainly because the benefits in relation to a corporate entity being a company probably just shift you away from why um, – partnerships are used more uh, less often now than what they were before so it's probably and we we can go on to company uh, when you wish but the benefits of that probably says if i'm going to move beyond my sole trader and going to go into business with someone else um if i assess the partnership as an option but then also put it against a company as an option where you can have instead of having partners you may have shareholders right you'll normally see that the benefits of that probably outweigh the benefits of the partnership, right. so they shift or or or, or move more towards that yep. that structure. Yeah, and I guess it might be cheaper if you're two builders to have a partnership to start with. 
Uh, you, but you're not that much because the partnership has to have its own tax return and financials in its own right. Yeah. Look, you, you're probably seeing where partnerships do still play is, is if there's a specific purpose for a short-term intent or a project, right? Yeah. So, so people may go into a property yeah. project as, as partners into a specific project. Um, again, Glenn, you said it before, people often use unit trusts as well. Yeah. But there has been partnerships for that where one may be contributing – something, uh, the land, one may be contributing capital and they go in, um, it may be for an 18-month period, they they realise the asset, walk away, right, then dissolve the partnership and away they go. Some of the questions that we did get, and I'm just reading them now, there was a lot that says, when should I move, I guess, from a sole trader to a company? So, I, I would probably say, to start with, it's more of a question when I'm a sole trader, when should I change to have a formal entity? Mm. Is that probably more of the language? Because it's it might not necessarily be a company. That's just an option if you need to grow the entity. And I guess for me, I might jump in and just give people a quick example of my business. I started as a sole trader because yeah. for me, there was no point spending the money to set up a company or a trust because it could cost a grand, $1,200 to set up a formal entity and then you've got to pay your ASIC fees, Mm. you know, $250 a year or whatever that is. Separate accounts and tax returns Separate accounts, separate tax returns. Yeah. Like it just becomes a bit of a joke. So, I thought, well, there's no point doing all that because I need to see if the person in the mirror can run a business Mm. first and see if I can actually make money. Mm. So... I started as a sole trader and to be honest, it, after two years, it started to look like this thing's got legs. Mm. And the problem is when you change entities, if you're growing a business that's got value, that's an asset. There can be instances where if you had to move entities later, you may have to pay stamp duty. And you may have a tax event. Yeah, capital gains tax. Absolutely. So, I sat down with my lawyer and my accountant in one meeting. It was savage. (laughs) 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 Shout out Estelle and Rod. Um, And we basically said, look, we need to set up some entities here. And I think it cost, I set up two entities, like a unit trust and a discretionary family trust and we'll get onto that because the thing was as the businesses grew Mm. i wanted to make sure that i never ever had to move entities so we had to future proof it had to spend the money up front and i I think it was like yeah five grand or something like that but it's like well do i want to pay five grand now or maybe 300 grand in the future in tax. Yeah, so right. it was just that yeah. dance. Yeah. And, so, and mom was the actual opposite. So, really? Yeah. So I was, we're always opposite. I know, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> Not boring, is no. it? So yeah, when I first started 25 or six, I think it was, uh, my accountant advised that let's set up a family trust, right? Which at that time I didn't have a family, it was just me. <laughs> but we'd created this family trust, which still exists today. Because mm. he said, Well, your intent is you're going to be a business owner for the next five, 10 years, 30 years. So let's set it up once and forget about it and, and just structure it that way. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that, Scott. 
Oh, look, I, I think both of you have, have great stories about the journeys and, and, and it's a common thing where, where you, you know, someone comes in or someone's, they're embarking upon a new idea and you're never quite sure. You know, is, you know, it's a 50-50 chance, isn't it? Like it's going to be a success or it's not. So, so you sit down and you've just got to assess, like you said, John, do I want to, and, and Glenn, do I want to spend, I've, I've, I've got so much capital that usually I'm willing to deploy to this new idea. Right, so in other words, I got cash, right, and and you're sort of saying, do I want? A, am I clear enough that I want to spend the money up front to have this future proofed, or do I want to crawl before I walk? Yeah, right. And and I think it's just an assessment of 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 the probably the risk tolerance or, or the person's ability to back their idea and where they want to allocate their money from the outset, and and neither are wrong. Yeah. Right, but 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 Glenn's point's important as well. That as you embark upon this journey, if you do start gaining success, where you're creating value, there can be transition costs in that middle by changing structures. So I think sitting down and having that open discussion with your advisor about what your intent is, how much money you're looking to allocate, how quickly your vision is wanting to scale. Yeah. Like, you know, whether it's at a point where, look, I sort of got this idea, I'm going to give it a go and do it. Or someone can come in with a really clear path. Yeah. Like, like, for example, opportunity has presented itself. This contract's there to be won. The contract's a large contract. Yeah. So therefore, they're, they're quite clear on 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 the size of their commercial activities yeah. yeah and i think like you and i were both in a situation where it was our full-time business from day one yeah very different to a side hustle set up i might do a few hours a week like you're yeah. not going to set up well, i wouldn't have and think it, of family trust nah. when you're doing three hours a week and that, and nah. that was knitting. Nah. for me it's like when people you know i had it really hard because i was an employed financial advisor licensed i couldn't is actually one impractical against the law for me to get another license yeah. and do a side hustle. Like I actually didn't have the advantage of building my business on the side yeah. and then jumping ship. Nah. And we'll talk about that when we get to the questions in part two of this podcast. So let's talk about companies. Yep. Okay. So a company structure, you get a client who's got a, a business. They've maybe started as a sole trader, side hustle, They've transitioned and we will get to the more of the transition stuff. And it's time to formalize the business in a real way. Yep. And why would someone use a company? Yep. And what is a company? Yep. Okay. Good, good, good question, Glenn. And, and a, comp- a company is basically a separate legal entity in its own right that, that can sort of do everything that I said before about um, – an, an, an individual, but the difference is, is that it is contractually separate and legally separate from the individual, right? So the, what they often talk about is the reason for using companies is one, there's a taxation element to it. So, so a company's tax rate is fixed. It's now down at the 27.5%, whereas an individual's tax rate is the highest marginal rate is 47%. So that's Big difference. Big difference. Um, and, and I don't want to probably get into the complexities around the tax system too much, but what you can imagine is as a business grows, it may generate profit that it's investing back into the business. So, so a great example if it's surfboard manufacturing is, is you'll generate cash from the sale of the surfboards. You then may say, we, we need more stock. The way the tax system will work is, in effect, you're taxed on the profit even though you may have spent the cash back into inventory. 
Yeah. So there's a point where where you got to go. Well, hang on. If I can get what I always call an arbitrage on paying twenty seven and a half cents in the dollars as opposed to forty seven percent, that's quite a big difference. Yeah. Um, so there's the taxation. There's the point that often, as I said before, there could be limitations on trade on another perspective, like being a sole trader or a partnership, whereas a company is is universally accepted, right? So you're not per- you're often perceived from the other person's perspective of having a level of size and scale with a PTYLTD status. As Which a po- is proprietary limited. Proprietary limited, correct. Yes. Which means that the perception of a counterparty is, oh, the, this, this business owner must be quite large, could be successful. Yeah. They've, they've set up a company, yeah? So the perception is you're, you're larger, but also, as I said before, there could just be limitations where someone who you're contracting to says, well, we we need you to be a company for you to be able to do business with us, right? Um, the other one just touching on before is that is really around the asset protection perspective, right? So, so John, you mentioned it before with a builder situation, uh, difficult to move across from a sole trader. Builders carry commercial risk in their industry. Workplace legislation and, and OHS and, and safety is, is becoming critically important. The company can act as a conduit between what they call a corporate veil between the individuals, right? So it it's a separate legal entity. It's carrying on business. It could be deemed as a conduit uh, from trading activities, whether it be product liability and so forth, are different to the individual. So it just separates that risk, mm. yeah? So often that's quite important from large contractual perspective where when you've got a small business and a small team, you can probably be across the majority of things they're doing. Yeah. If you've got different jurisdictions, different states, you know, many, many staff, yeah. um, that's incredibly difficult to manage. So a risk mitigation perspective is you may separate from the individual the trading activities yeah. into that corporate. So getting yourself arm's length from the coalface. Getting yourself arm's yeah. length from the coalface. Now, the other point just to talk about from a company's perspective, a bit different to the sole trader and, and the partnerships you can do it, is the ability to um, raise money or, or have capital invested by shareholders. Right? So it, no different to people who invest in, in public companies, BHP, CBA, Westpac, so forth. You can also invest into private companies. So there's situations where a private com- well, every private company must have, well, majority must have shareholders. So they uh, are the beneficiaries of the profits, both capital and income, into that company. And you could have one shareholder, five shareholders, 50 shareholders. Yeah. So they can invest in. Now, the company also has what they call a statutory role of a director. Okay, So the director is, from an ASIC regulation perspective, responsible for the activities, both statutory, regulatory, legislative, in relation to what that company undertakes. So the directors are basically governed with managing that company's activities on behalf of the shareholders. Right. Okay. So when, when would you not use a company? It's really about well, what the original intent is. Mm. Um, so, so like Glenn said, you you wouldn't you wouldn't do it if you're just trialing a new idea, not quite sure whether how much money or capital you're going to invest into it, yeah. and just feel that there's that, that you don't want to invest in structures for structures' sake from the outset. Yeah. Um, the easiest, simplest form is you can just start being a sole trader yeah. and trial that. The other point is that probably just. People often, it depends. So a company, like I said before, we've spoken a lot about trading activities. We probably haven't spoken about investment activities. Yeah. Like I want to acquire 
a, a residential investment property portfolio or, yeah. or portfolio. Yeah. I want to buy the building that that my business currently operates on. Yeah. Um, that's where you uh, there's benefits outside of a company because a company doesn't get what they call is a, a capital gains tax discount. Yeah. Whereas individuals and trusts and super funds can get that. So it can be it can be prohibitive from a investment perspective but beneficial from a trading perspective yeah yeah i um i just want to pipe in there and talk just on the company thing we talk about a public company and a private company so John and I could set up Glenn's Radical Cool Surfboards Bro Proprietary Limited I'd call it something different but anyway yeah what <laughs> not Glenn's <laughs> so we could set up a private company right and it's got a thousand shares and John and I own 500 shares each. Yeah. Okay. We can get into the complexities. What, who owns the shares, whether John's trust owns the shares or whatnot. And we both could be directors. And by the same thing, we're different to BHP or any company that's listed that you can buy shares in. A public company, they have to produce public reports so the world can see what's going on in the company. Anyone can trade shares in that company. There are many private companies in Australia that are getting big household names. And I just did a, a quick search, top 500 companies, private companies in Australia. So, for example, one that everyone would know, Cottonon, mm. Cottonon Group, okay? They're a big company that's got clothing stores everywhere. Their entity structure is no different than John and Glenn's Radical Surfboard. Mm. So it's the same thing. It's just bigger. Correct. And it's private. It's no one's business. How much they pay their CEO, how much profit they make, it is all private. Correct. Okay. So that's the kind of key differences. There's no different than setting up a company in your backyard selling surfboards than cotton on. That's correct. So they can grow as big as you want it to be. Gina Reinhart, the world's richest woman, and her company's Hancock Prospecting is basically a private company. So no one really knows what's going on yeah. and, and it's none of their business. No, and, and Glenn, it's a, it's a great example where, where you're sort of saying, you know, if, if Glenn and John's radical surfboards started kicking some goals and selling a lot of surfboards and went into different states and offered opened retail outlets, what, what it sort of says, as you said about Cotton On, is you won't outgrow that company structure. No. Like, so so on, on that original journey, and we said before about this transition or change from structures, we've just seen an example where that structure from the outset could be maintained for many, many, many years into the future. Yep. John and I, and I, I don't want to get too complex, but John, and this is why you just need a good relationship with an accountant if yeah. you're in business. Like this could be almost the complex we'll ever get on this podcast. <laughs> John and I have this surfboard company. It's a private company. John owns half of it. I own the other half. John put some money in to start the company. John doesn't work in the business. I'm employed as the manager. So as a manager, I might get 60 grand a year. And on my personal tax return, it will have the same line item as income as you would have if you worked at Woolworths or the hospital. Okay. So I get that John doesn't work in the business, so he doesn't get a wage, a working wage from the company. But at the end of the year, if we made 50 grand, because we own 50% each, we would both be entitled to a 25% profit. 
Yeah. 25 grand. Yeah. Now, oh, sorry, 25 grand profit. Yeah. yeah. So, so just that the good point, if the company decided to pay out that profit to you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then based on our own various tax implications as to whether you would pay that profit out, right? Yeah, that's right. So so this, this is where the, the, the company can, can act as, as, as a beneficial from a taxation flexibility perspective because the example before was sole trader would just report that 50 grand and pay full tax on it. Yep. In the company's perspective, it would and, – and sole trader could be paying tax at 47 cents in the dollar. Company – could make the 50 grand. Company would have to pay company tax, 27.5 or 30%. And, and that's an important point. Mm. If your business is growing, do you want to pay 50 cents in the dollar or 30 cents a- in the absolutely, dollar? Absolutely. Because if you model the cotton on journey, yeah. as these businesses grow, they consume cash or capital, right? To open more stores, to buy more inventory, it just costs you money. So if you can keep more of it, within your business along the journey, it means the compound effects of that growth or capital is beneficial. So it, yeah. help, it, it absolutely helps things. But back to the point that we're just trying to get to is there's no requirement for those individuals or shareholders or whoever owns those shares to report that income unless that dividend has been paid to them. Yes. So, so it can be retained within the company and the 47% or the top up doesn't, doesn't get paid. It's only when the money flows through to the individuals or, or their entities that own the shares that they have to pay the tax. So you can see that that provides a layer of flexibility. For example, if, if I'm keeping the money within the company for further investment, like more stock, then I wouldn't be paying it out or wouldn't be deeming those individuals to be accessible on that income. I think... As much as a company structure has the pro of tax, I think it also has a con of tax. Do you know know where I'm getting at? No, keep going, Glenn. So, if I've got a company that's building an asset, okay? So, my company is a growing asset. It's got clients that pay fees or whatever. I could then on-sell that asset. Yes. If I've got surfboards, I'm making surfboards. I could sell the company and effectively someone else could buy that recurring revenue of surfboard sales. The problem with a company, if I had shares in a company and I wanted to sell that company, companies can't claim the capital gains tax threshold. That's correct. So for me personally, because I was my business and we want everyone's business to be an asset. Mm. Absolutely. And there's some questions that we'll get to in part two around this. I didn't want to build this asset. And if I had to sell it one day, not get the capital gains tax exemption. So, John, you've got a client who sells a house. Mm -hmm. They make $250,000 profit. Mm -hmm. Just if you sold a house or some shares and you made that profit and you've held it for more than 12 months, half of that would be taxable. So, you get the 50% discount method in that case. So, that's why you just really need advice. And we're coming right up against the clock for this episode. And I don't think it would add that much value to talk about it in depth about trust structures. So, there is another structure called a trust. Can you somehow... And we... If it is in popular demand, we will let us know and we'll do an episode just on trusts yeah. because we could probably talk for an hour <laughs> on trusts. We could. And 
it, yeah. it does go beyond the scope, I think, conceptually for people who are listeners. What, what's a trust? Okay, so, so again, a bit like the partnership, it, it, a trust is a separate legal entity that's set up under a governing document, which is a deed, right, which basically outlines the rules of the trust. Um, now, the trust also has beneficiaries, which are those that can only benefit from the trust, and, and it has a, what we call a trustee. Now, basically what happens is when the trust is established, that's what they call is settled, which means it comes into existence. Now, no different to what we said before about it can get an ABN, it can get a TFN, it can be registered for GST, it can hire employees, as long as its deed says that it can do this. Um, the trustee is responsible for managing the assets within that trust for the benefit of the beneficiaries. So the primary example is in, 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 a lot, in a lot of cases is where what you call discretionary trusts or what you call family trusts. Um, they're usually set up by families um, for the, for, to hold an asset for the benefit of the family members. So what, what normally happens is, you know, I am a bit stereotyping here, but you may have mum and dad um, could have three or four kids. So they set up a family trust. That family trust could start accumulating assets. The reason why they want to have it through a family trust is because they want the assets separate from, say, mum and dad. Maybe mum and dad are both doctors. Maybe mum and dad have the risk of being sued. So they say, we, we don't want to accumulate wealth in our own names. So they put that across into a family trust. The family trust invests at the end of each year, no different to the partnership, a flow through occurs where the trustee must make a decision on how to distribute the profits of that trust to its beneficiaries. So it could distribute any, if it's a discretionary trust, it has the right or discretion to distribute that money for the benefit of the beneficiaries in, in whatever percentages at each year. So almost like a partnership, a trust doesn't pay tax the beneficiaries of that trust pay the tax yeah. at their own marginal tax rate. That's right, Glenn. So, so the way the system works is if a trust doesn't distribute, then the trustees assessed and that's automatically at the highest marginal rate. Yes. So, so a proxy for that is family trusts, well advised, always distribute. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I just want to, I forgot to add about the company thing because we're talking about bank accounts. You will actually need a company slash business bank account. So the banks will, by default, won't let you set up a personal account like we were talking about with the sole traders yeah, for the company. company. Uh, so you would get a bank account owned by the proprietary limited. So John and Glenn's radical surfboards bro, proprietary limited, would own the bank account. That's correct. And that company would have its own tax file number and ABN. So that would have to go to the bank as well. And because... It is a small business. It's actually a company business account. Generally, there will be more fees involved and you might not get as high interest rate. You might have to pay a monthly account keeping fee. So, you're just moving everything to a new level. Yeah, com commercially and a bit more complex and, and, and potentially cost uh, more expensive. Yeah. yeah? And, yeah. and not only that, John, your, your example before, you're absolutely right. All your As you're trading as a company, all your licenses um, – insurances uh, have to be in the company's name because it's the entity that's carrying on yes. the business operation. So you, you can't have your, your builder's license being held by 
um, John Pigeon than having your company carrying on its building activities, yeah? The registration through HIA has to be through yeah. the company structure. And there's a bit of a, a myth that goes out there, and I'm not going to talk more about trusts, actually, because it's just way too complex. Yeah, it's getting um, pretty heavy. But people think, I've got a company, so I've got my surfboard company, right? And I'll just pretend I'm the only shareholder and the director of the surfboard company. Oh, I'm going to get a van that the company will own and a loan. So, I'll register the van in the company's name because the company owns that asset. I'll get a loan that the company will own. And people think, oh, I can just do a loan in the company. But the thing is, nine and a half times out of 10, when you go and get that loan, they will put a director's guarantee on that loan. And that will lead to you being on the hook for that. And that could still affect your mortgage. Mm. Because what will happen is like your borrowing power. So, if I've got the surfboard company, it's got a 30 grand van that I purchased and there's a debt on that. The banks, when I want to do a, a home loan application, they'll sweep the credit bureaus and they will see that there's an entry in there of a director's guarantee on that loan. So, that could trip you up as well. So, there's this whole thing with companies and it's probably harder in this day and age than 40 years ago. Be a director of a company, go south and you just throw away the keys and see you later. Mm. Pretty much director's guarantee, you're on the hook for everything anyway. Oh, absolutely. Director's guarantees, definitely. But there's there's a lot of things from a commercial trade perspective that, that won't require a, a, a director's guarantee. But yes, any bank or institution will 100% demand a director's yeah. guarantee, especially for a small company. That's been a wild journey talking about the different entity structures and I hope that's kind of helped position the sole trader and company differences. So, we will end it there and then we'll come back for a My Millennial Answers episode and we'll just straight up go through all your questions. Scott Young from Altus Financial, thanks for joining us today. You've Thank been you, real. <laughs> Pleasure, gents. Thanks for having me. Bye. If you're after personal financial advice, this podcast is not for you. But if you do want a financial advisor or mortgage broker to talk with about your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'll put you in touch with one of our trusted professionals. If you're looking for a super fund that puts its members' interests above all else, choose a super performer, Sun Super. With low fees, strong investment returns, and great member services, Sun Super is Super Ratings 2020 Fund of the Year and has also been awarded by Money Magazine, CanStar, and Finder. Find out more about Sun Super at sunsuper.com.au forward slash choose. You can join Sun Super online in under five minutes. My Millennial Money supports A21. A21 is a non-profit organization that exists to abolish slavery everywhere. These guys rescue real people from human trafficking across the world. If you want to learn more about how you can contribute to the fight against human trafficking, check out a21.org forward slash au. Thanks to Jess Knaus, executive producer, Chris Burke, sound engineer, Laura from La La Social Club, and me, Asha. Uh, anyway, make sure you stay connected via our Instagram, our free Facebook group, or if you want to turn it up a notch and be on the inside of the show, become a member of M3 Private. For further information about what's going on, check out the links in the show notes.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.